So today I continue the series, Do I Stay Christian, based on Brian McLaren's book. We're delving into uh, delicate territory today. Uh, it's common wisdom where at holiday gatherings and family gatherings you don't talk about religion or politics. And so of course today we're going to talk about both things, religion and politics, uh, because politics has become a major reason why a lot of people are just leaving the faith altogether. And I can appreciate that. Uh, because uh, the political nature of religion and its its work in politics has gotten increasingly uh, pronounced uh, in my lifetime since I've been aware of it. Now, when I was born in 1970, um, didn't know a whole lot about what was happening or what had happened prior to uh, me being born, uh, but I was certainly aware by the time uh, Reagan was elected and forward and could definitely see uh, religious language, vernacular, uh, passion, pressure, uh, entering into the political environment. So we're going to talk about that today because I wanted to know, as I've seen this thing develop uh, for the past 40-some years in my you know, adult life, I've been curious about where did this come from uh, and how did it develop and why did it develop uh, and what were the variables uh, at stake here because there's a lot of rhetoric uh, but I'm not sure that that really tells the story. So we're taking a look at politics today. And if we're going to take a look at politics, we need to start from the very beginning, or pretty close to the very beginning. And that's when our nation was founded. So you know that we're roughly talking around or 1776 is when uh, this came about. And there are two documents uh, of our founding documents that are of particular importance when it comes to this topic. Uh, one uh, line comes from our Declaration of Independence. And it reads like this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now it's interesting that um, when Thomas Jefferson first penned these lines, he actually used different language um, about uh, this whole thing which became self-evident, but Ben Franklin actually scratched out his word. He used more sacred language, Jefferson did, and Franklin actually recommended that the word, the word self-evident be put in there about um, the truths being self-evident. And the reason why he did is he wanted to have a more of a scientific uh, aspect to it and not a sacred aspect, even though creators referenced and we as created human beings are referenced he wanted to keep it tighter into the scientific realm. That's important for us to think uh, deep into the future. And so, 1776-ish, um, uh, that's when this uh, document uh, was made known uh, to the to uh, the United Kingdom, uh, which was officially formed in 1707 as a United Kingdom. Uh, one of the other key pieces in our core documents, of course, uh, is the Bill of Rights. And in the First Amendment, the very first line of the First Amendment, says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Goes on to talk about free speech and that kind of a thing. But it's interesting that the very first line talks about government, stay out of religion, don't make a religion official uh, for anybody and get out of people's business when it comes to religiosity. Well, of course, a lot of people uh, came to the United States, came to the colonies uh, because of religious persecution. And so we need to keep that in mind. Of course, that's why uh, it shows up there. 
that they didn't want government interference with that. The other key things that you need to appreciate about um, particularly the Declaration of Independence is if you read the whole thing, which I encourage you to do, I, I think it's a good thing to do like annually just to refresh your memory. Read that, read the Bill of Rights, read the, read the Constitution. I think it's a healthy exercise. I've been trying to do that for the last uh, several years and find it interesting. But what you'll find out is that in the Declaration of Independence, uh, we're actually communicating back to the United Kingdom that they were a terrible government, that they didn't govern us well, uh, that they failed uh, to comply with their own commitments to being a good government. And that's why we were choosing independence, because they were lousy at governing us. They were violating our rights. They weren't representing us. They were abusing us as the peoples of the colonies, treating us like second-class citizens with really no rights. And that's what led to our Declaration of Independence in the first place. Uh, it wasn't just taxation without representation. It was bigger than that, deeper than that, and it is a long list that is levied against the king. So I might want to read that because that's helpful. Okay, so the country's born. Uh, we go through the 1800s, which were lots of growing pangs happening. Uh, of course, Civil War happens, uh, the whole question of slavery, that whole question of you know who really has equal rights, that was in conversation in 1776. Uh, we kind of punted it, tried to work our way around slavery. The Founding Fathers knew they had to do something about it, didn't have a really good solution for it, kept kicking the can down. They thought they figured some things out. Jefferson thought that some of the decisions he made was going to fix slavery. Well, it didn't. It made it worse, actually. So we get to Abraham Lincoln, Emancipation Proclamation, Civil War, and of course after that, equality for all for about five minutes. And then after the Reconstruction stopped in the Deep South, uh, then Jim Crow showed up and some horrible things ensued from there for many years. But during that time, uh, the Industrial Revolution also happened. And with the Industrial Revolution, uh, you had industry magnates uh, who were just killing it and making huge bank uh, as more and more industry developed in the United States and we became this economic powerhouse machine. It led to the Gilded Age of the late 1800s. In that time, you've heard me talk about this, uh, there were some pastors and theologians that were looking at particularly the plight of the vulnerable in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. It was representative problems that were happening in a lot of industrial areas. Uh, where children were being forced to work long hours with no protection, women were forced to work, there were no days off, working conditions were extremely dangerous, the living conditions where these people were forced to live because of their low wages was also terrible, immigrants were treated terribly because they didn't have many other options and so they could be treated terribly. And so church leaders started to speak into this. They just looked at it as this is the work of Jesus. Uh, they recognize that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a clear directive to look out for the poor and the vulnerable. And so they were simply doing that. They were raising alarms to both the business leaders and to government and trying to push for change to protect the people who couldn't protect themselves. This became uh, known as the social gospel. But the original people who were doing this, they didn't call it the social gospel. They just called it the gospel. The good news is supposed to be good news for all. And it's meant to communicate that all people really are created equal by the creator and therefore needed to be treated with dignity and respect. What they were really pushing against here was greed. Because it was the greed of the industrial revolution 
that kept people where they were, while the while the heads of industry uh, were showing off their wealth and incredible splendor. <laughs> They were doing it on the backs of the poor and to the neglect of the poor who made them wealthy in the first place. So they were calling for different changes and all this. And if you've heard me say this a couple of weeks ago, uh, this all kind of came to a grinding halt with World War I because socialism uh, became a a dirty word uh, globally as it was abused. And anything to do with government interference in terms of the social order and intrusion into business Uh, was just looked at uh, with horror. And so you had that happening, which kind of slowed things down. And then um, the Great Crash happened in October of 1929, led us into a Great Depression. And at that point, you had a very odd thing happening. You had people who were reeling against um, horrible economic times. It was global in nature. You had industry leaders uh, who are eating a little bit of crow uh, because their companies are tanked, uh, they can't do much, and the PR is terrible for them. So they recognize that they're part of the problem. They're seeing that things have to happen. Uh, you have Franklin Del- Delano Roosevelt, Roosevelt come in, and he has the New Deal. And the New Deal uh, is not good news uh, for a lot of industry leaders because they recognize that the New Deal means it's going to be government uh, programs helping lift people out of poor. So you have a lot of working programs and uh, safety nets and this kind of a thing are all wrapped into that New Deal, uh, which industry leaders do not want. So they're trying to figure out how do we circumvent this thing? How do we move forward as industry leaders uh, when that is the lay of the land? And they found a surprising and, in their world, unlikely hero <laughs> in the name and a guy named uh, James Fifield. James Fifield was a pastor in L.A. who was very successful. He was also, uh, in terms of his politics, a, a Christian libertarian, which means that he was uh, all for no government intrusion at all. Uh, There shouldn't be any government safety nets. That's not the government's job. Governments are supposed to take care of roads and make sure we're safe. But other than that, lay off, get out of our our business. And it turns out Fifield was at a business leaders uh, meeting um, in New York City. Like I said, this guy was well known in LA. He basically was a megachurch pastor doing some really creative things. He wasn't particularly conservative, by the way. Uh, He actually didn't have much room for um, the more conservative leanings of the church at that time. You remember, this is kind of around the era of the Scopes trial and biblical literalism and all that. Uh, Fifield didn't want anything to do with that. He thought that was a silly argument about inerrancy and infallibility. He was pretty moderate, uh, theologically, politically, very conservative. Uh, and so when he talked about how he believed from a Christian perspective that really the hope for the nation was not government programs, but salvation of people, that if people really understood their value and got their lives turned around, that would change everything. The solution, according to Fifield, was we need a spiritual renewal. We need a spiritual revelation. We need a spiritual revival uh, in our nation. And if we can get behind that, that's going to solve all of the problems. Well, that was music to industry leaders' ears. And they recognized that through this pastor, And through the network of pastors that this guy had, they had an avenue toward thousands and thousands and thousands of leaders across the nation 
who could become mouthpieces for a new way of thinking. And that's exactly what they did. James Fifield helped organize uh, city chapels all over the nation. And these were business leaders and sometimes government leaders, but mostly business leaders who would come together and have prayer occasionally, sometimes weekly, sometimes monthly. And this gained traction and it had influence and it went both ways. Not only were the pastors able to influence business leaders, but business leaders were then able to influence pastors as well. And businesses started to realize that they had a pipeline for information to help craft a message that was going to be politically very, very helpful. This was all within the Republican Party back in the 1930s. So we're going way back, uh, a very long time uh, before Nixon, before Ronald Reagan, uh, all that. This, in fact, most historians say this is really where it began. This is when uh, conservative Christianity and conservative politics got engaged and it started to grow from there. So you have two different bodies of people now. You have pastors and you have industry leaders who do not want the New Deal uh, that, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, is implementing. And so uh, they tried to work around that and tried to push as much as they could and found their hope in the next president that they hoped to elect, which was General Eisenhower. Eisenhower was deeply spiritual. Uh, and he saw himself uh, as a candidate not just to implement different changes than FDR wanted to do, but he really believed, according to his own words in history, he really believed that he was going to be instrumental in creating a spiritual revolution in the country. And he really felt like that was his calling. And he used sacred terms like that in a lot of his speeches. By the way, Using uh, religious language was very popular even back then. FDR used a lot of biblical metaphor. Eisenhower certainly did as well. By the time Eisenhower came along, he got elected. And now, uh, with the help of these pastors and all of their networks, I mean, Fifield was connected to 70,000 pastors nationwide. 70,000. And then he had a Methodist uh, pastor uh, help in a different kind of a way. His name was Abraham Vereed. And Abraham Vereed uh, took things to a different level. So he had a, uh, what he called, uh, he created the City Chapel Prayer Breakfast, which ended up leading to the National Prayer Breakfast. Uh, he had the National Council for Christian Leadership, was a pastoral training thing. He ended up going international with that. And it all spoke the same kinds of things. Small government, uh, individualized church, individualized faith, and those are, that's how it's supposed to go. So Dwight Eisenhower gets on board. Uh, with spiritual uh, revival, uh, prayer breakfast start, um, and we find out that Russia has a nuclear arm. We find out that we're not the only ones in town uh, who can blow up entire cities with one bomb, and it sends the nation into a panic. Uh, you've got communism. Communism is godless. They've taken God out of their rhetoric uh, and it's not even a part of their public life in many ways. And so uh, we pit ourselves against the commies, so to speak, and their godlessness, their atheism. And we began to look at ourselves and own our spiritual roots. And we looked to those founding documents and we found enough evidence there to suggest that we are a God-founded nation based on that creator-created uh, language. Now, 
In all honesty, if you go back and look at the faith of Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and the founding fathers as a whole, they really uh, operated on a theology of deism. Christian, but deism nonetheless. And what that means is that they believe that God uh, kind of got everything created, but then really was uninvolved uh, in the daily lives of human beings. That's the functional deism that they, that, uh, that they believed, that they wrote with, and what they thought about. It wasn't a hyper-conservative um, Christianity at all. In fact, that was a little bit repelling uh, to them, particularly uh, Thomas Jefferson. Well, anyway, uh, things move on. You have a, a country that uh, is terrified of the potential for nuclear war. Um, you have a renewed effort uh, by, um, by Fifield and Reed and industry giants and now Eisenhower who are wanting to see spiritual revival happen. And so something happened in the late 1940s into the 1950s that absolutely blows my mind. All three of these groups, President of the United States, industry leaders, and Christian pastors uh, worked together to create a national campaign to get people to go to church. And it was funded completely uh, by industry giants. So you had Madison Avenue, you had Hollywood, you had the biggest names uh, in industry and show business all communicating in one accord, get back to church because a good Christian is a good American and a good American is Christian. That was the message. Lo and behold, after years of this, and that we're talking TV, radio, we're talking posters on buses, we're talking postcards in the mail, it was everywhere. Not surprisingly, uh, church attendance and religious vigor, uh, which had stayed pretty steady somewhere in the 40 percentile, you know, generally across the nation for decades and decades and decades and decades, it got as high as it's ever been in our country's history. Uh, 80%, 80% of American citizens uh, had some affiliation uh, with a church or a synagogue. They called, talked about three religions. Uh, they talked about Judaism, Catholicism, and Protestantism, as if Catholicism and, and Protestantism are two different religions. They're both Christian. But anyhow, that's how they, that's how they understood uh, plurality uh, back then. This blows my mind uh, that government-sanctioned stuff, government funding along with business, all helped this along. So when people like me in church world, when we talk about the golden era of like starting churches and ministry, we talk about the 1950s. I never knew why it was so popular. It's because we advertised the heck out of it and made it a culturally normative thing. So if you didn't go to church, if you weren't associated with a church, you might be communist. And if you're considered communist, that could be big trouble for your employment, could be big trouble for everything. By the way, in the 1950s, that's when In God We Trust uh, showed up on all of American currency. It was only on a few pieces uh, before that. But in the 1950s, under Eisenhower, that's when In God We Trust showed up everywhere. Also, in our Pledge of Allegiance, that under God phrase, that showed up in the 1950s as well. It was not there before that. And in part, while it's more complex because of the underpinnings of economic issues and political views and religious views and libertarianism and all that, but also in reaction to communist, atheist, 
Russia that helped spur us into this way of thinking. Well, as we marched into the 1960s, um, the religious side of things wanted to see even more done in America to help make sure that this revival, this spirituality stuck, especially as the 50s turned into the reckless, uh, crazy stuff that was going on in the 60s. A lot of pastors thought, we just need to get Bible and prayer back in the school. And so that was the attempt uh, to get the Bible Bible study happening in schools and prayer back into schools. This first was a showdown in the 1960s. The Supreme Court shot it down uh, after an intense fight. And then a workaround was uh, attempted, uh, first through the lower body, the house. And so uh, through a, an extended, very politically maneuvered uh, process, uh, hearings, just like our January 6th hearings, they had Bible and prayer in school hearings uh, for the House that lasted about six months. And at first, most of the country uh, was in favor of this. Uh, but over time, as people were brought in to testify from their expertise, which included most denominational officials, they started to see that there were some problems here uh, with this idea that maybe on the surface it sounded like a good spiritual idea. Who can, who can complain about the Bible and prayer for Pete's sake, right? But as these people started to look at things and wonder about things, they started to ask bigger questions like, whose Bible? Which version of the Bible are we going to read? Do we get to read the Bible that the Southern Baptists are used to reading, which is King James? Or are we going to read the Catholic Bible, which is quite different? And if we're reading the Catholic Bible, are we going to include the Apocrypha? And what about for Jewish people who don't even recognize the New Testament or the Apocrypha? Are we going well? Some of the apocrypha, I guess they would. Uh, are we going to um, are we going to just read the Old Testament then? And then again, which version are we going to read? These kinds of complex things began to muddy the waters. And in terms of prayer, well, who gets to write the prayer? What's in that prayer? So there were attempts made. You had the Pledge of Allegiance, but then there were also attempts made at a prayer that everybody could agree to. And all of the religious leaders, when they looked at the prayer, said, that's going to do more harm than good because it was such a watered down prayer and so general that it really didn't mean anything. And the fear was, is that if you choose to make this thing uh, that watered down and people think that's prayer, they're never going to get the real heart of any of the faith. It's, it's going to actually be counterproductive. That was the argument that they made and it stuck. They also recognized that there was a difference between Bible study and prayer in school and in God we trust and under God in our, uh, or our Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. That is that they recognize, and historians look at it this way, that in God we trust and under God in our Pledge of Allegiance are, are what are called ceremonial deism. Uh, it's ceremonial language that speaks to a historical reality but not necessarily a working construct for faith. There is a difference in studying scriptures and saying that we had a foundation that had some spiritual roots to it. So long story short, it did not win the House. Same thing was tried with the Senate, and it did not win in the Senate. Time went on. It's interesting that uh, while, uh, <laughs> while the country's falling apart with civil rights issues, 
the Southern Baptist Church in particular, Southern Baptist Convention is working very, very hard to get the Bible and prayer into schools and also working very, very hard to keep black people out of schools. Uh, that's kind of how, how to get your brain around that, right? But that's what was going on uh, in the Deep South. Well, what that did is it drove uh, the religious element within the Republican Party ever more to the right. So it became a more and more conservative uh, group. Remember, it started with Fifield. Fifield was a moderate uh, who was a libertarian, so he's politically conservative, but he was a moderate theologically. Now you march that forward. By the time you have this issue with a school prayer and Bible study stuff, um, you have a lot of mainline guys. In fact, an American Baptist general secretary was one of the one of the leading advocates against uh, the prayer and Bible in schools. Yay, American Baptists! That's that's our tribe uh, because they recognize the problem of it and the futility of it. So what that meant, meant was is that the voice of religion within the Republican Party took another step to the right. And one of the people that was a champion of that cause was Billy Graham. Now, Billy Graham got his start uh, at that time of heightened awareness of communism, of spiritual revival. He was part of that whole movement. So in the 1940s, late 1940s is when he got his start. And man, if you read the, the kind of numbers that this guy got uh, all over the nation, it is incredible. And it felt right in line with this individualized salvation, which Fifield and Vareed and others were very comfortable with. Keep the social gospel out of it. Keep government small. Uh, and we are going to focus as spiritual people on our personal salvation, which if it does its work, is going to transform us individually and collectively over time. That was the idea. Eisenhower's uh, VP uh, was Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon ended up getting elected as president, as you know your history, and uh, did the most that we've ever seen done in terms of fostering that marriage, uh, probably working that marriage for political ends. I don't know how devout a Richard Nixon was. There are obviously some things in his history and in his character which suggests that he may have missed a story or two <laughs> in the Bible. Uh, but I can tell you this, nobody played this fiddle uh, more than Richard Nixon. He instituted, with uh, Billy Graham's oversight, weekly church services in the White House, on the nickel of the White House. Uh, and the guest list uh, was very carefully orchestrated and invited. Uh, the preachers who were going to be there were only preachers who were going to fall in line uh, with Nixon's agenda related to world events and whatnot. And by and large, it was a safe space, and it was also televised, and it was a safe space uh, where Nixon could say whatever he wanted without much pushback uh, because he was protected then under the freedom of religion. Now, I have a hunch that if they could have consulted with Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and George Washington and the Founding Fathers about, hey, what do you think about this idea? I'm not so sure that that would have gone over so well, because it sure starts to smell like uh, there is a preference for one particular religious voice. Do I think there was some kind of nefarious thing on Billy Graham's part? No, I think he was, I think he was just, you know, leaning into his worldview. Uh, and that's how he saw the world and 
just saw this as an opportunity and a gift from God, and so let's go forward. Well, so things are developing. Billy Graham was definitely a conservative, uh, both politically and theologically. That continued on through the 70s. You had this weird uh, thing uh, called um, Jimmy Carter, <laughs> who was a Democrat, but from the South, Bible-believing, Bible-teaching guy, didn't know what to do with him. He inherited a presidency at a time where things were awful. He was a one-termer. Then we got Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, the great communicator. Boy, did he know how to communicate uh, to the religious conservatives. He used language uh, like you would not believe. He's the first one that used uh, very um, frequently that phrase at the end of speeches, God bless us or God bless America or something to that end. He was profoundly good at it. But in his personal piety, he wasn't a big churchgoer, which is kind of a strange phenomenon uh, when you have heightened deepening conservatism within the, the the religious group that are supporting the Republican Party, the person that's actually at the helm, uh, it was recorded that in his first three years as president, he averaged going to church three times a year. That's it. He would show up for the national prayer breakfast and other religious things and talk a good game, uh, but that really wasn't uh, his vibe for whatever reason. Things continued to get more and more conservative. He promised on the election campaign that he was going to get the Bible and prayer back in schools, things which never happened, uh, but that just emboldened more and more, um, more and more conservative uh, Christian people. That only got worse or better, depending on which side you're on, uh, in the 1990s. Uh, you had George H.W. Bush, who was Episcopal, couldn't talk well, just like his son, um, but was pretty I mean, a pretty upstanding guy, I think. I think he was a person of integrity and a statesman, uh, for sure, um, and took his faith seriously, uh, but a one-termer. And then it shifted over to Bill Clinton, uh, who was Southern Baptist uh, and grew up in church. Uh, his grandma, as he said, tells it, his grandma said, you know, if you just clean up your act a little bit, you could be a pastor, and Bill Clinton says, and so I became a politician. <laughs> Boy, did that ever play out. And of course, we know what happened with Bill Clinton. So you have this weird combo of moral, moral failure coming from a Southern Baptist who's in the White House. That helped give flame to the moral majority and the hyper uh, activity of the Christian right just kicked into high gear. I became really uncomfortable at that point. At that point, I'm preparing for ministry. I'm starting my first, or in my first church. And during the impeachment hearings for Clinton, and by the way, no excuse for Clinton, right? Uh, bad move, horrible, uh, awful, no, no nothing there. He was impeached for lying to Congress um, because of his cover-up and all this stuff, so I'm not making any excuses for this guy, okay? But at the same time, the rhetoric that was coming out from Christianity was unbelievably relentless in its judgment. And in no way, in my opinion, reflected the character and nature of Jesus, who, when faced with people like Bill Clinton, extended grace and mercy and kind of wooed them into the kingdom of God, wooed them into confession, wooed them into a whole different thing. And so we didn't have that here. And so that was troubling to me, and not just me. Uh, there were many others who were not as conservative religiously uh, that found that a little bit off-putting. Well, we made it through eight years of Clinton, and then we got George W. Bush. And George W. Bush, he was a different kind of Republican that we hadn't seen before because he was a born-again Christian. Uh, his story is pretty interesting that way. And I believe that he was very sincere in his faith. 
I think he was generally a good man. I think he lived and leaned into uh, his worldview, the way he saw things, which was very Christocentric. If you have read much about his life and how he lived in the White House, he was an early to bed kind of guy uh, and didn't really like to party, didn't drink, you know, all this stuff. Uh, politically, you may have big problems with him. I mean, 9-11 happened with him. The longest war in America's history happened uh, under him. Uh, lots of stuff. Uh, but this was a different shift. And it was also different because here's a born-again Christian, but he didn't, he didn't speak into it like the way that the Christian right expected him to. He wasn't overly anti-abortion, for instance. And he wasn't pushing hard uh, this whole uh, Bible and prayer thing back into schools. He was kind of moderate in some respects, uh, as far as the political agenda is concerned for Republican politics. So that that's where that ended up. Of course, Obama was elected. When Obama was elected, that fed a couple different flames. Uh, we didn't see racism get tamped down. We saw it ramp up uh, while Obama uh, was in the White House. And the idea of small government, that whole thing uh, was heavily inflamed because of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Uh, this was looked at as government overreach, government intrusion, and that definitely uh, upset industry leaders who were generally more on the Republican side. So that's where things ended up until Donald Trump was elected. And by that time, uh, we have a completely different phenomenon. So things have gotten more and more conservative on the religious side. And in Donald Trump, uh, they didn't see a moral hero, because I don't think anybody in their right mind would look at Donald Trump, and I don't think Donald Trump would either, uh, would, would see a guy who is representative of, of uh, the Christian ethic, right? But they did see him as uh, Cyrus of sorts, King Cyrus, back from the Old Testament days, who was used by God <laughs> to help God's people. I've heard, literally heard this uh, rhetoric uh, spoken and written about, um, you know, since Donald Trump's uh, presidency. And so you had this weird dynamic of a religious conservatism, which also resonated with a religious nationalism uh, that's, that Trump definitely spoke into, a small government, which Trump definitely spoke into, and it created a lot of interesting dynamics, to say the least. But what has happened over our time is that instead of uniting us, which is what Eisenhower was trying to do, and in many ways did do, uh, with his whole In God We Trust and Under God, all the God talk since that time has actually created more of a wedge between people than it has brought them together. So much so that I told you uh, just you know a few weeks ago when I was talking about anti-Semitism, that for a few years I couldn't wear a cross around my neck, not because I was any less of a Jesus guy, I will be a Jesus guy till the day I die and after. Uh, but it was because I didn't want to be painted with the same brush of other people who were wearing the cross in such public political ways that in my opinion did not reflect the full teaching of Jesus. That seemed very callous toward people who really needed help, who were the most vulnerable among us. And I couldn't see it. I couldn't make it happen. And I know that's the case for a lot of people today. I know that's why a lot of people have left the faith and have no interest in being a part of it. They can't, they can't even admit, I know that there are crosswalkers who struggle with this, who don't want to tell their friends that they've even thought about going to church or attend church because they don't want to be painted with the same brush as that mess 
that became representative of Christianity as a whole. We know through Gallup polls and significant studies on religiosity in America that more and more and more Christianity has become to be known as something that is against more than something that is for. And that is deeply problematic for our nation. It's deeply problematic for our faith as well. I'm not trying to shame anybody or call anything out. This is a religious right problem uh, that has developed over many years. And we need to look at it and we need to figure out what can we do going forward if we're going to hope for anything different. How can we build bridges in that to that end? So I want to think about what Jesus had to say about this. Jesus did not live in the United States. He did not live... Um, you know, under a democracy, uh, he lived under Roman oppression in his homeland, and he didn't have many rights, and he knew it. And uh, he was very uh, challenging toward religious leaders because he thought they weren't doing their job in some ways. In some ways, his whole life was a declaration of independence to the Sadducees who were running uh, the whole Jewish game from Jerusalem. Uh, one indictment after another. He was letting them know, you guys are blowing it. You guys are misinterpreting scripture. You're getting hyper-legalistic on things. You're not caring for the people you're supposed to care for. You're getting nice and fat on all the offerings that are being taken. But meanwhile, those offerings are taken from very, very, very poor people. And you're enjoying these positions of high authority. You've, you've become embedded, literally, uh, with the Roman government. And we can't trust you anymore. And so we need a new day. So when Jesus talks about new wineskins, uh, because there's new wine, this is what he's talking about. He was, <laughs> he was against the government of Judaism, if you will. He was against Roman government as also, but he was also against the Jewish government, uh, their leadership. And one time they were trying to trap him. After he schooled them in one way, uh, they tried to school him right back, and they found themselves schooled all over again. So in Matthew 22, we have this interesting exchange. The Pharisees plotted a way to trap him into saying something damaging so they could get him thrown in, in jail from the Roman uh, side of things. They sent their disciples with a few of Herod's followers mixed in to ask, Teacher, we know you have integrity. Teach the way of God accurately and indifferent to popular opinion and don't panter, pander to your students. Is that a kiss-up move or what? So tell us honestly, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because they knew the good churchy church answer was, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because he's not of God. So they think they have a checkmate. But man, they should know by now, you can't checkmate Jesus. So Jesus knew that they were up to no good. And he said, why are you playing these games with me? Why are you trying to trap me? Do you have a coin? Let me see it. They handed him a silver piece. This engraving, who does it look like? And whose name is on it? And they said, Caesar. And Jesus replied, then give Caesar what is his and give God what is his. The Pharisees, actually this would be the Sadducees, were speechless. They went off shaking their heads. I find this a particularly relevant passage to look at today on politics because Jesus lived in a very political environment. Very political. 
If there's anybody who ever tells you that Jesus wasn't political, he didn't get into the political fray, that's hogwash. Absolute hogwash. If people say that, that means they're not paying attention. They haven't done their homework because Jesus was deeply political. Many of the things that he said uh, were direct shots against the Jewish leadership. And some of the things were uh, instruction on how to do nonviolent resistance against the Roman government without getting killed. Uh, That was part of his MO, but his whole thing was nonviolent. Don't do it in a violent way. What he's saying here with the the coin issue uh, is very provocative. (laughs) and dangerous. Caesar thought he was God. Caesar thought he was God. When Jesus says, pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he was saying that Caesar was not God. It's a political statement that the one who is on the throne is not God and is not endorsed by God. And to suggest that the actual God deserves God's due was a direct challenge uh, to the Sadducean leaders of his time because they had been robbing God uh, unnecessarily of the tithes and offerings that came in to make themselves rich. They lived in lavish luxury inside the city walls of Jerusalem and really didn't give a rip about Jesus and those northern hillbillies that they didn't want anything to do with. I think Jesus is instructive here. I think Jesus says something that is provocative and yet very clear. And I think we need to have the same sensibility that our government is not God and neither is our country. If we are truly Jesus followers, then let's truly be Jesus followers. Let's let's agree uh, that uh, that personal transformation, individual salvation, which individual wholeness, transformation, that's what really salvation is all about, uh, that kind of becoming, that that is deeply important and is certainly a part of what it means to follow Jesus. This individual salvation project, which is a lifelong venture, it's not just lip service, deeply, deeply important. Jesus was about it his entire uh, adult ministry that we can see, took time away to study, to reflect, to pray, all of those things. And yet we also know uh, that Jesus was fully communal at the same time, uh, that he recognized that he was not in this thing alone. Even though he's top dog, even though that he's been anointed by God in a special way, he chooses to do life not in isolation, not as a radical individual, but in community at the pace of community. It had to drive him crazy sometimes, how slow the disciples were to get it. And yet he stuck in there with them because he knew that was what was going to take the movement forward. They practiced the faith together around the table, around the bread and the cup. And they also taught, as he taught, every Christian from that time forward to be socially engaged. That we are not checked out that this whole faith venture is not just for our own inner peace, but it's to make the world a better place. It's to bring the kingdom of God, or better words, the divine commonwealth into being. That means when we see systems that are hurtful to people, we as people who are supposed to be the voices for the poor and those who don't have a voice, we speak into it and we cry foul on behalf of those who can't. That's part of our job. It's in the Old Testament and New Testament. There's no 
way around it. It is a part of the deal. You don't get to choose. I'm just going to focus on my personal piety and my personal salvation project and let somebody else do that. Joel Olstein might want to do that, but that is not the way the Bible works. We are called to be agents of change in the world who know that we have a creator who loves us profoundly, who sees us as equals so that we can see God in a loving way and see each other as our equal neighbors with eyes of love and therefore do what we can to make sure that everybody experiences those ideals which are reflected in our Declaration of Independence. That because we are all equal, because we're equally created by a benevolent, loving creator who actually is deeply involved in our lives, everybody should have the same right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I would agree that to be a good Christian is to be a great American. But to be a great American doesn't necessarily mean that you're a great Christian. And we got to keep those things straight. So as we go forward, what does this mean? Does it mean that we you know, rip up our GOP membership card or our, our Democrat card? No. How you think about government, that's your right uh, to do it. But within those organizations, can you see a different allegiance? Can you, if you claim this cross, can you really claim that this is your highest authority? And that sometimes this is going to clash with our own American flag and sometimes our own American sensibilities. And it's going to call us to act. And when we're called to act, we're called to act in a particular way that is nonviolent, that is reflective of Jesus, that is justice oriented, that loves mercy and also walks humbly with God. So before we end, I have one more song uh, that I want you to experience and just sit with. This is just to give you a few minutes to, uh, if I made you steam up, <laughs> you can let the steam kind of cool you down a little bit with this song. And then after this song, uh, we will together read a rendition, an adaptation of the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, which is a deeply meaningful, provocative, world-changing prayer. Enjoy the song. I'll be with you in just a minute. 